Hello and welcome to the Essential Adventure Sport Podcast, where our aim is to shed some light on the world of adventure sports, be that top tips and best practice for coaches, leaders or guides, inspiring expeditions, or just a chat with one of the many interesting people who work and play in the outdoors. We really welcome interactions and discussions, so if you have an idea of a subject you'd like covering, or you'd like to contribute to the show itself, then please drop us a message. So it's time to sit back and enjoy this week's episode. So hello and welcome to episode three of the Essential Adventure Sport podcast. Uh, this week, Nick and I are pleased to be joined by Dan Wilkinson to chat about all things planning. So before we start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're involved in adventure sports, Dan? Uh, I live in the Lake District in England and I've been involved in adventure sports professionally since the age of 17. I started out teaching kayaking on the canal in London and then rapidly moved away around the country, developed a love for whitewater kayaking, moved to North Wales at some point and also developed a love for mountaineering. I'm fortunate enough now to be qualified both as a winter mountaineering and climbing instructor, which is an MIC in old money, uh, and a British canoe whitewater kayak coach. So I spend a lot, all my time outdoors, whether that's for personal enjoyment or taking other people out to enjoy these really cool places we go to. And I figured that planning was something that is integral to everything we do, whether it's participant or coach. So it had real relevance to us here in this uh, podcast that you guys are so expertly managing. Very well done, Dan. Very well done. Um, great. Uh, so I guess you know a good place to to start for us is that you know when we think about having a plan especially in an adventure sports setting you know what what is it we mean by that because it seems like a simple question but i guess it can mean different things to different people depending on what their intentions are yeah so um i guess from a if i'm just thinking of going out on an adventure myself then i'll i'll make sure that i've made quite a comprehensive plan we'll get into more detail about that um so i'm thinking about what i'm going to expect what's happened before and all those different factors that will affect my planning process that will then affect my judgment and decision making about where I go and when I go uh, and then from a coaching point of view I probably plan in a slightly different way depending on what type of coaching I'm undertaking at that time so um, uh, we've got a few different concepts that we'll explore around what I do as a coach which might differ to what I do as a participant I guess. So do you have a um, a a structure that you use or you know is, is there a, a you know predetermined way you think about your planning given either of those two topics either just for personal trips and expeditions or for your coaching yeah let's um let's explore personal personal uh trips days out adventures first um so one of the things that we really want to make sure that i'm incorporating in my planning after many several failed epics with my friends most notably my wife, Kate, is to make sure that the, what we're going to go and try and do matches what we both want to be doing that day rather than just my own uh, agenda. That's really important. I mean, I remember taking Kate on to Helvellyn in winter and it was the first time she'd ever worn crampons and obviously thought that going up Striding Edge, which is a grade one winter climb, was the most appropriate thing to do that day, which obviously wasn't and became apparent when Kate was in tears halfway up Striding Edge. Now, that was not a good plan. <laughs> so um, I guess developing on from that, I started thinking about what is it we're actually wanting to do and what matches the people that we're going out to do it with. So I've been fortunate enough to go paddling with Nick quite a lot. 
out at Penrith Mower and places, which is entirely appropriate for us to go. And that sort of thing, because of the level of experience we both have, we can just go and throw a range of meeting time and turn up and crack on with it with the amount of experience that we've got between us that that's appropriate for us to be doing. Whereas if I'm going to take a family group out for the day or I'm going to go for a walk with my mum, I'm going to make sure that where I'm taking my mum walking is really nice, it's gentle, it's flat and it's got a tea shop halfway along and a pub at the end because that's what my mum would enjoy. So I guess what I'm getting to is to think about what we're trying to achieve by going out in the first place before we even start thinking about where we're going or what we're going to do. Is Are we looking to just go out for a lovely time and enjoy ourselves or are we looking to go out and be challenged slightly, either by the environment or the activity we're doing? Um, and from that, I can then start thinking about where I want to go and what I want to do while I'm doing it. Yeah, I am. Um... Uh, I've been listening with interest down to, uh, to, to the, your opening remarks about reminding ourselves of the importance of um, being clear about our motivations and the, uh, the ways in which we would describe having a good day out. And I, I've noticed that I'm very uh, mindful of that, that when I'm working with uh, my clients. If I'm heading over to the west coast of Anglesey to meet a group of clients, as much as I'm thinking about the weather forecast and so on, much of my thoughts are around what would make a productive day that would be aligned with their goals, their aims, their experience, and so on. And I've noticed that I have to more actively remind myself of that dimension if I'm getting into the excitements of planning an adventure in my own time. Um, I think that that emotional content that we sometimes bring uh, is, is important, it's necessary, as much as we enjoy our working lives, um, we can more easily remember the professional responsibility that we've got to our clients. So naturally, we put them first. And the anecdote you just told, um, I was thinking of that myself this morning because Kelly and I went, went for a climb. There is a, there is a venue we can use within five miles of the house-ish. And um, uh, before we left the, the house to go climbing, we had a chat about what it was that we were each of us thinking we were going to get out of the experience because it's one thing to go climbing, but that, that covers a, a broad range of experiences. And uh, we agreed that we each had some pretty well aligned goals and the, uh, the, 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 the venue we'd go to would ideally permit us to um, feel comfortable, but feel challenged as much as we wish to. And that led us to ruling out one or two options. And then to rule in a couple of venues, one of which we chose. So yeah, yeah, yeah. As you as you were talking about some principles, I was drawn to today, <laughs> and um, uh, and how important it was for us to get that bit right. I um, I think that's really important from our coaching's perspective, but also from just going out with people. Um, we think about four different motivational factors that might influence people uh, being to either enjoy a new activity or challenge to embed some learning or performance to explore new ideas or environments or to excel in their chosen discipline when we think about coaching and taking those each of those different motivational factors needs a slightly different approach to our our planning because that's going to affect where we go with those people and what we do with them and we could do that personally with our group of friends or we can do that professionally when we're working in a coaching context so yeah that's a really good way to to package it go on just Take us through those four again. I was busy thinking about the first one and then you got to the end of the list. So go on, tell me again. 
so we might be just looking to enjoy ourselves either a new activity or challenge or or just to go for a nice pootle around in a gentle puddle with you around Trada Bay would be a nice example of enjoying myself out to embed some learning or performance so I might have had a coaching episode with you and then I'm like I want to go and practice that again so I'm just looking to embed that sort um, or to explore a new concept or an environment so maybe going down and around um going out to go around the skerries might be exploring a new environment from a sea kayaking thing or going up onto the north face of ben nevis in a winter climbing context i might have only climbed in the northern corries around cairngorm going onto the ben is an entirely different proposition uh, or to excel in our chosen activity so i guess from my perspective that's things like going on these expeditions where we've done first descents in places like peru and uh, kenya or going off ski touring in the lingan alps all right. Yeah. Great. There you go. Got it. Thanks. And I guess all those all those four areas st- still fall into that. You know, having some shared objectives, isn't it? Because that's part of the the conversation that we'd have with either friends or with clients or students about um, which one or in what order those four things might happen. Are, are there any are there any 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 challenges when we come to having the conversations about what those shared objectives are that you've found in the past? I think the biggest challenge that we have is just being open and honest with people around what we're looking to do, especially given the, uh, you know, if I've driven, if I've gone from here up to Scotland and then I've gone with my friend and it turns out we get all the way up to Scotland and we've both got different motivations for being there, then that becomes a challenge. And we normally don't end up talking about them until we're already at the venue or about to start the journey or something. Um, which either causes conflict or one of you has to compromise and doesn't exactly get what you want. So um, I'm now much more open and I think it's taken me a long time to become open with people. It's definitely a skill about what it is that I'm looking to do that day, especially given I've now got a four-month-old daughter, so my opportunity to go out in my own time is probably a little bit more limited than it has been previously. Do you think it's it's a trap you fall into because it's, to friends or its peers going and, and maybe you you wouldn't you wouldn't do that if you were spending a day with clients because you have a, bring a different mindset to it do you reckon that's something that happens oh definitely without a question of a doubt i think we just i think the underlying thing there that's intrinsic to us is that we just assume everyone else is doing it for the same purposes um so uh you know i was working my way through my mia which is now called Mountaineering Climbing Instructor Award. So I was trying to tick all these big, long mountain routes off. And Kate is my long-suffering adventure buddy, got, gets to come along with me. And her motivations for coming out were to have a nice day with me rather than to get two or three VS-grade routes done. And so when I'm trying to squeeze in an extra route in the sun's setting, you know, she's, uh, she's looking at her watch and thinking about maybe getting down the pub to see our mates before it's closing time. I'm remembering an, a, a, a day out with Adam last summer. Um, we went scrambling in the in the glitters. Adam suggested that we uh, we make the most of the good weather, and so we made our way up the edge of the Idwell slabs and over the Canavian Arrest, and then we dropped down into the the area below the north. Um, those north facing buttresses on Glitterbach, and I think we went up Dolman Ridge. And as we got to the top of Glitterbach, I thought this has been a great day out. And uh, I was starting to think about going for a beer. Adam uh, looked at me and said, should we, should, we, should we descend via Bristley Ridge? Well, that seemed like a good idea as well. And as we reached the col, 
And he then said, come on, let's, um, let's, let's, let's go over Truvan as well. And I thought, really, Adam, really? We're going to do this as well? So suddenly there I was on the east face of Truvan. And we made it to the summit. And, and to my disbelief, uh, Adam then turned to me and said, if we descend this gully, we can do another scramble on Truvan. And I thought, really, Adam, really? And then I, 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 the, the reality of the situation became quite apparent to me. Um, this was Adam's precious day away from childcare. And he was going to stay for as long as it took for him to get as many, many of his favourite scrambles in as he could. So I could go the next day. I was quite ready to go and have a beer and, and have a rest and maybe do it again tomorrow. But there wasn't a tomorrow for Adam. And um, as it happened, I was very pleased to join him in his adventures. But I could imagine on another occasion, he might have encountered more resistance from me. And you know what? We didn't talk about it at the start of the day. We didn't have a, a consensus about what the extent and the limit of our adventures would be. So I, my only solution at the end of the day was to get some revenge on him by insisting that we, we run from Little Trevan back to Ogwen. As a, as a final exercise, and uh, he didn't like that. Um, anyway, there you go. I don't think that's advanced the discussion at all, but uh, it's kind of aligned with your previous anecdote. I think that, that that, for me, has now become a much more of a starting point for my discussions with people that I'm going to go out with in my own time. Um, you know, if I, uh, I'm minded of a, another time when we were up in Scotland working in winter and... Uh, popped up to the bend and it was exactly the same sort of thing i was like oh we just it was my rest day so we just went and i thought we'll do a quick route get down into the fort have a cup of coffee and enjoy ourselves for the afternoon and uh, my friend who i was out with wanted to do a second route which on the bend is you know, a little bit more of a proposition than just ticking off another one at, down the uh, clanberries pass on a rock climbing day out so yeah, you normally just go along for the ride because we enjoy being out so much anyway, don't we? But, you know, it's important. And I think even more so now to just, I'm trying to be really clear about what I'm looking to get out that experience with those people before I kind of commit my plans any further towards thinking about where we're going or what we're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I've found it a little easier as the years have gone by because I've become a lot more mellow about what I think a good day out might look like. And, I realise that my range of activities on a given day can be quite broad and they can give me quite a lot of satisfaction. But I can recall uh, with specific activities at certain times in my life, I would get very focused to achieve what I perceived were important goals for the day. But they weren't necessarily aligned with every other member in the party. So I think I've learned the hard way over time to just, just uh, make sure that we have that that discussion that you've alluded to. Openness is important, isn't it? Being being clear, even about our own objectives and goals, and to, to ask myself the question, what what is it that I'm hoping to get out of this experience, whether it's a few hours, a few days, or even a, a few weeks of expedition time. Mm. So what makes it might might be a question that's difficult to answer, but what makes for you know, a, a good plan. What are the sort of considerations that we put in place for, for generating that, that, that good plan? I guess for me, it starts with that understanding motivational factors and then thinking about what we could do that's based around those emo- motivational factors and the logistical factors of the resources we've got 
available to us that fit in with that. So I'm really fortunate. I, I live about three minutes walk from the River Kent and I can jump on and go for a quick blast in an evening or something. You know, a lot of people might have to travel from places like, like London or the South Coast to come up to go whitewater kayaking. So, um, and then finding people to share your fuel with and all those sort of things. You know, we need to think very carefully about who we're going with it becomes a big part of that. But then those other logistical constraints that we really need to have a little bit more knowledge about in our environments for our adventure sports like adventure sports in general. So um, I'm minded of things like thinking about what's happened before in the environment. So I'm, if I'm going to go paddling in Scotland for a week, I'm going to start looking at the rainfall a week beforehand so I understand how saturated the ground is. You know, uh, because a brief shower onto saturated ground will bring rivers up quickly. You know, whereas a, if it's been dry for a whole week, then that little bit of rainfall is not going to make it affect our our rivers. And it's so much easier nowadays with all these online gauges and information. But I remember driving round the lakes for donkeys when I was a student up here, trying to find a river to paddle that had some water in, because we, we had no clue what we were doing. We were just kind of like going, oh, let's, it's Tuesday, let's go kayaking, without any consideration for what the environment had been doing the week before. So adding in, once we've got our motivation, kind of those logistical factors, what the environment's been doing previously before we start thinking about where we're going to go and those like finite details is really important. Yeah, I agree, and um, thinking about uh, an activity I've enjoyed doing in my free time. If it was a winter that I knew was going to give me the opportunity to visit the Alps for ski touring goals, I would get very interested early winter in the patterns of snowfall, temperature changes. And even if I wasn't able to visit that part of the world, I would do my best to educate myself about snow stability so that when I arrived in my chosen area i had the beginnings of an idea of of what might be possible what the limitations would be i found if i disregarded that information source and then tried to catch up with my knowledge during the few days before my trip i'd find it almost impossible to build my awareness of what the opportunities were going to be like when i when i got to for example the chamonix valley yeah that that's really where I was going to take that whole plan thing next. So we've kind of identified some logistics about where we can go and the sort of things we might like to try. And then we start start focusing a little bit more on what it is that's actually relevant for us to go and do on that day at that time. And the that's so relevant in winter. I think the, the so much that I've learned from doing things in winter that I've transferred into my whitewater kayaking and the planning process. So the, um, the avalanche... Thing, like rule one of avalanche club is don't get avalanched right in order to not get avalanched that there's a lot that we have to take into account before we even get on the ground on that day it's not just a case of avoiding those slopes on that day at that time so the scottish avalanche information service have got a fantastic um resource where they talk about planning before you go rather than planning on the day as you're going so they think so much about planning at home in the weeks days and hours before we even set out so uh, for those of you who don't know anything about avalanches they put out an avalanche forecast every day which um, in winter in every alpine region including scotland that says on these aspects and at these altitudes there's a various hazard that you might get avalanche you know the various i guess luck really if you don't 
look at that bit of information and you walk on that, you may or may not get avalanched. <laughs> so we think about our planning. And then there's no journey in the winter that's the same. So on every day, I'm going to be walking on various different aspects and at various different altitudes of a mountain. And so thinking about before I've left home, which of those aspects and altitudes are dangerous, potentially, for me to go on to? What am I going to base my decisions on when I get there as to whether I carry on or whether I come home? Because coming home at the end of the day is the most important thing in our in our all adventure sports. You know, it's, it's only a sport. We're doing it for fun, you know. So going, uh, breaking down your route journey that you're about to undertake and think, well, this is a bit more of a hazardous environment. I need to be just up my level of awareness here to and make a decision based on some different factors that I can preload before I've got into that environment is really important in winter. And I can now, I now transfer that sort of thinking to my whitewater kayaking. So if I'm going out to do something hard, I'm starting to think about, well, what would make me run that particularly hard rapid on a day or not? So is the water levels perfect for it? Is there a new hazard in that rapid and all these things rather than just mega training down a river and hoping that it's exactly the same as it was the last time I went out. Um, and they call this key decision points. So on our route, we're just identifying before we've left home what these key decision points are going to be and then thinking about what might affect our decision making when we got to them. So we've front loaded ourselves to make an accurate decision rather than a gut feeling instinctive decision in the environment. Like you say, there's there's comparisons that can be drawn. You know, if you spend a day on the sea, then you know the, the amount of preparation and planning that goes into you know taking a group out into a tidal environment is the same, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think we can draw parallels between the two. I find that um, the time I have available before I arrive at a venue and before I meet a group. It's extremely valuable to me, and uh, we've had some recent discussions around decision making. Matt, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to consider um, the information sources that will be relevant to my planning. Um, for example, the evening before I commit to a trip in local waters. And certainly again, early the next morning before I'm under pressure to leave the house and go and meet my team. Um, because I think the time available there gives me a better opportunity to, um, to look closely at the available information, maybe to employ some analytical uh, decision-making processes. Because it's so much harder to do that when we're in the moment and we arrive at a headland We've got dynamic water around us and there are time pressures that are inherent in the day, not least the group looking at you, waiting for you to make a decision. Um, I find it's much harder to um, delve into the detail of the available information at that point. So I try to do it at, at, um, at times in the day before I get too closely committed to the next decision. And Dan was just referring to decision points there. Uh, I think I, my, my days in the outdoors, especially in sea kayaking, are made up of a series of decision points that are often identifiable geographically, the next headland, the next inlet, the next bay. And I try to break down the day into a series of identifiable decision points where even if I'm not obliged to change my plan, 
at least I recognize that it's a moment where the opportunity arises. Um, that's it's really interesting to hear you talk about from a work perspective. So some of the recent research that's come out of uh, UCLan and, and that is identifying the fact that professional venture sports coaches tend to have this concept of a straw man plan before they leave the house or, or when they're meeting their clients and they've done a little bit of information gathering. So it's not just the sort of, it's going to incorporate things like what venues we might go to with that group before we've met them or what we might be working on or the theme for the day before we've met the clients and seen how they're doing and what their behaviours are like actually on the water and stuff. And then as we as we carry on, we kind of put some flesh on that straw man plan to to focus our, our coaching in a more detailed and precise way. But we're not going leaving the house with a very definite plan of what we're going to do, where we're going to do it and how we're going to teach it um, because that's really dangerous in our environments because it doesn't give us the opportunity to change our minds if we've stuck to this plan. And there's a load of stuff that comes out of biases about whether or not we believe that if we've made a formal plan before we've left the house and it's really formalised and it's like we do this here, then for 20 minutes we do this and then we do this, you tend to get really wedded to that plan in your mind. And then that being wedded to that plan means that you're not able to rationally look at it and change it if the environment needs it or the clients need it which is one of the key things that we should be uh, doing as adventure sports coaches is matching the environment and the clients together, really. Yeah, it's interesting, Dan. I found myself thinking about the um, my working environment uh, for a moment uh, as a coach, as a CCAT coach. Uh, the, the clients and the students that I work with um, are generally there to develop their experience and their often their decision-making uh, skills in that environment. And so if I bring a, an open and questioning approach to, to the, my interactions, uh, there's, a, there's a common understanding that we're doing it for purposes of enhancing our understanding together. And it's okay for me to ask a question in that environment. And it's become a, a, a style of planning that I've become very familiar with. And, and I guess it's, for, it's my default these days. And I was reflecting on it um, recently uh, when I enter a different world as a sea kayak guide, sometimes I can be out with clients who aren't expecting me to take such an inclusive questioning approach. And I realized on one occasion last year that it was being perceived by group members as a form of indecision. And, and they began to question my certainty about what I was doing in that environment. And it took me quite some time to realize that that's what was happening. Because in my world, I was asking questions and inviting contributions because I wanted everyone to share in the collective understanding of what we were going to do. And I realized that my life would have been an awful lot easier that week if I'd taken a much more directive style and told people what was going to happen. But I don't like getting committed to a plan because I can take a flexible approach, but if the group perceived that that the plan is the thing we follow, well, we're starting to go down a dangerous road of group members assuming that what we discussed the previous evening is exactly what's going to happen the next day. Uh, it was a it was a, a lesson for me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> that could be also linked to that first point that you made, Dan, about having those kind of you know shared objectives for what's going on, and and I wonder if um, if if they see. The person who's in charge, like you said, just as a guide, well, then they just they just want to be on the train and, and 
kind of come with you for the journey and, and you're going to make all those choices. So do, do you, either of you, do you think that involving your students or your clients in that planning and preparation, the decision-making, do you think it's stuff that they can, can learn from or is it just so they're part of that decision at that moment? Can they go away after spending time with you and, and add that to their little planning database or toolbox? I think again, it's going to come back to those clients for that that what their motivation is for being involved. You know, if they're if they're from come up from London for weekend and they just want to get some really cool photos for their Instagram feed of them in really rad places in the Lake District Mountains, then I'm just going to take them to really rad places in the Lake District Mountains and try and avoid some of our classic West Coast weather that we get here as much as possible. You know, whereas if they're looking to become independent hill walkers or mountaineers or rock climbers or whatever the work is that we're doing, then I'm going to start off right from the start of their, their learning journey with me to be thinking about how, what we're making decisions on before we leave the house, what we're making decisions on when we're out on the ground, and then reflecting back on those decisions after the day out. And, and it's just matching those motivations of those people to the, to the day that we're going to have, I think, or the experience we're going to have together. Nope, that seems to make sense, doesn't it? I guess it just depends which hat you're wearing, depends on how you're going to approach it. Um, it's, it's kind of quite common i suppose across all those different adventure sports that you have um it's just, like you say it's just about meeting their needs in 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 that moment and i guess um you sometimes get clients or students that come along and they just want decisions to be made and then as the day or the week goes by they start getting a bit more interested in the in the planning and the preparation element and start asking questions and exploring you know why you're doing the things that you're doing so i guess there can be a bit of an evolution as a even maybe a day goes by but definitely as a as a week-long trip goes by where they start getting more interested in in, in how the plans are occurring yeah and people's motivations change daily probably you know if they if they think oh, i want to try sea kayaking for a week and they book a week with the excellent people at kayak essentials and then about halfway through that week they start thinking actually this is something that not only am I enjoying this week, but I'm going to want to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to start finding out more and then we might change our approach as a coach to match those people. And that's where our flexibility as coaches is essential. Yeah, and while we've been discussing this, um, I, I recognise that we're bringing our perspectives of coaches to the, to the discussion. Um, I'm well aware that some of the people listening to this podcast will be um, uh, recreational paddlers who might even be giving up some of their precious free time at weekends to look after less experienced club members. And one or two of them have been asking us questions about how they could um, effectively plan their their adventures. Uh, and I often feel that, that we have an easier time of it um, because frequently uh goals are relatively well aligned within within groups that have committed to a particular training course um guided weeks are often structured so that there's an understood framework of conditions in which we're gonna uh go and go and enjoy our act chosen activity and i think in in club environments it can be the case it can be the case uh that there's a more diverse range of uh, objectives, experience levels, perceptions of what a good day out might look like. 
kind of brings us back to the earlier part of this conversation. I think it also links to, um, I think you said before, then you said about about being honest and having a, you know, being honest about what you want and where your abilities are and 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 also people who are taking responsibility for you, whether that's on a voluntary basis or, you know, a more professional paid for basis and um, saying to them, well, this is what I want. And then them being able to be honest with the people that they're with and saying, well, maybe what you want and what you need, maybe two different things. And I think sometimes the, the challenge and the problem comes when, when, especially in a voluntary setting, everyone wants everyone wants to be inclusive so they they end up allowing everyone to come along for the ride and sometimes maybe that wasn't the best way of thinking about it but um yeah i think i think it's a tough challenge like you say we know we often get people who come to us and say this is what i want to do and then we can match what they want to do maybe with the venue that we choose or the the the, the activities that we take them on um so i think it's a real tough challenge especially in in things like clubs for them to be able to to manage that well um, so it's a tough job they've got there. I, I also, um, I, I think one of the ways that you can address that is by setting out clear aims for the trips before you before you leave. So it's like, we're just heading up to the Lake District for the weekend and we are going to paddle some grade two rivers. Is a really sort of like, this is a clear objective that we're going to try and achieve, which comes on to that like kind of backwards and forwards. It's like in our planning process, you know, what are our motivations and what are our goals are the two things that we really should be considering when we think about where we're going and what we're going to do on those days, trip, whatever it is. So um, I've been on a couple of trips where I've had very clearly defined goals of doing a first descent. And I've been on a couple of trips with my friends where I've just gone, yeah, let's just go to Switzerland and see what's in good condition to kayak on at the moment. You know, they're both really valuable and valid ways of approaching the planning process you know but when we've got really clearly defined goals that we share as a team before we leave and even if it's i'm a gnar bag grade five paddler or whatever and i go oh, i'm going on a grade two paddling trip great i know in advance what i'm signing up for and what i'm committing myself to and my time and then that i think hopefully smooths out a lot of those ripples that we're talking about you know where different people have different objectives and different agendas Hit that might be hidden from everyone else to kind of drive in their behaviors and kind of going, oh, I don't really want to paddle this river, you know. Whereas you're like, Well, this is the only good, really good grade two river, and this is our objective, so that's what we're going to get on with. Yeah, I think what, what I was what I was reaching out for earlier, um, a concrete example of that, um, Matt, our friends Dave and Fee, who run river trips for their, their paddling club, uh, I took a look at some, um, pre-trip information that they'd sent to their their club members and uh, it was a model of clarity it was excellent their the, their chosen river they could they could assess the river level via the online gauge and they could also visually check it out uh, on the day in question they gave a rendezvous to the group members um, but they emphasized that wouldn't necessarily be the put in that was simply a place they were going to meet um, they ruled out one section of river on the basis that it didn't match the stated aims of the trip, which were made very clear, the ability level that people needed to have in order to, to come along that day. And they also ruled out that section because they made the statement that as leaders, they weren't able to take responsibility for people on that type of water. 
So that that immediately took away a degree of uncertainty for people who were deciding to go that day. They also stated that according to river levels, they would consider one of two different river sections. And if the river was above a certain level, that wouldn't guarantee that they would get on a particular river section, but it, it would guarantee that they would not get on another river section. And uh, having read the, the guidance that they sent to their club members, it seems to me to be an, an excellent way of, of providing clarity for everybody so that there were aligned expectations before they met in the car park on that Sunday morning. And that's, that sounds great. I wish I, I wish I was in that club. Um, but I think that, what are, that what's really interesting to listen to there is the fact that they're saying that this is their kind of main goal, but they've got some alternative backup plans. They've obviously spent their time planning, thinking if X happens, then I'm actually going to go and do Y. And that's that link all the way back to our slow time decision-making, that we're analytical decision-making that we talked about right at the top. Um, because one of the things that comes out a lot of avalanche education and has come into this whole huge chat about heuristic traps and our thinking biases that I noticed you guys have done a couple of blogs about is um this idea that if we leave our home with a fixed objective then we're much more likely again to feel wedded to that objective and ignore the changes in the environment that mean that we probably shouldn't be going towards that which is where all this avalanche education and planning stuff came from um with that whole work that they did about heuristic traps so like being analytical with our this is kind of a good area we could go to. These are good aspects we can go on to uh, all the way through to this is a key decision point and these are considerations that I'm going to make sure I'm balancing. Really, really important. I'm reminded of a friend of mine, uh, Sean, who lives in San Francisco. Uh, he's a British paddler and 16 years ago he was making his way around Great Britain and Ireland as a solo sea kayaker. Name's Sean Morley, and I um, was chatting with him about the risk assessment process that he went through prior to embarking on that trip. And he knew that during the course of that summer, in order to complete his journey, there would be several significant open crossings that he would have to do, some of which were 30 or 40 miles in length. And, and he knew that within the expedition, he was likely to be tired stressed and committed to the goal and he knew that immediately prior to embarking on one of those crossings he wouldn't be necessarily in the best frame of mind to engage in detailed analytical decision making so as part of his risk assessments he wrote down wind directions and wind strengths that would rule out those open crossings and he would not leave from his departure point until certain elements, certain environmental elements were in place. And he said he found it extremely useful because when he arrived at those moments in the, in the expedition, he could turn to his notes that he'd written down uh, with the luxury of time sitting at his kitchen table months earlier. And he could say, look at that. I told myself that if the wind was, for example, blowing 15 knots from the southeast, I wasn't going to leave. And it shortcut the decision-making process for him. And it gave him useful heuristics that, that he was able to use in a positive way as part of his overall trip. I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it, it 
it's a good example coming back to your Fiona and and Dave. I, I've seen them put pictures because they lead people on the sea as well, and I've seen them put pictures of them in in the cafe, saying, you know, actually it turned out today the conditions that we we thought were going to be the case actually weren't the case. Um, and I guess because they've got those structures in place beforehand, it also helps them because they then say, right, we said we're going to do this and this is not what this is. So, you know what, we're not going to do it. They're not feeling the pressure from the group to go, well, you said we were going to come here and we've we've made that drive from Liverpool or Manchester, wherever it is, to, to, to Anglesey. And then there starts becoming a bit of pressure to, to get things done. And if you've got those pre-established I don't want to call them rules, but that structure beforehand, then it, it, it's good for everybody, including the people who are responsible. Um, but that's a really good example. I think the Sean one of, of in the moment saying, right, yeah, I had the time and space to think about this. So these are a set of protocols for me when I feel like this. Yeah, I really like that. I'm, I'm minded of a, another time when I've had to make decisions not to go to places where we've not had the luxury or foresight to do so in a sort of an analytical approach. So uh, we were in Peru aiming to do a first ascent of a river. We'd flown over to Peru, you know, we told our sponsors we were going to go and do these first ascents, we were going to make a little film about it, all these different things that, you know, that were important to us on that trip. And we drove up to get into the river. We drove to 4,000 and something metres and then we were walking down the drainage. We met our porters that had been arranged uh, and they're like, yes, yes, it's a two-day walk. So we're like, right, great, it's two days and then it's about 30k of white water. No one's ever done it before, so we'll take four days' worth of food. Um, So we, we walked down for a day with our porters carrying our boats and some mules taking all our kit and us just having a lovely time and get there. And and only when we got to that camp did it transpire that the path we were meant to then follow the next day to walk down to the where we thought we'd be able to navigate the river from in our boats um, had been washed away by landslides and they thought that it would actually take three or four days for us to walk from that point to the riverhead. Now, if we're thinking about making pressured decisions... (laughs) that was a pressured decision we've walked we've dropped 700 meters in altitude and walked for a whole day with only four days worth of food based on the information that we had and now we're being told that actually this thing that we've traveled halfway around the world for probably isn't that much of a reality as a result of this and there's a team of four of us and we went around in circles for a little while about what to do you know did we think we should carry on? Did we think we should walk out? Were they just trying it to get more money? If we just offered them more money, would they walk faster? And then we'd actually get there the next day sort of thing. And um, yeah, it was. It left a... It, when we'd done all the planning that we should have done to be there, you know, we'd, we'd looked at everything. We had Google Earth imagery of the river and worked out gradient profiles and all sorts of stuff. And yet we just felt like there was too many unknowns that had been introduced into the planning process to carry on with that safely because as always the first rule is come home so uh, it was a a very unmotivated team of people that got up the next morning to walk back up to 4,000 meters with our kayaks and try to arrange a jeep by sat phone from the Peruvian 
uh, Andes um, to then leave and go back to Cusco to kind of lick, lick our wounds and restart our planning process of our main objective of our trip having been taken away from us so early on. Go on, what did you learn from it? <laughs> you can't plan for every eventuality. <laughs> um, that that by having at the very least you know we were all on the same page with the fact that we wanted like coming home is the most important thing you know we we felt some commitment to sponsors and people that like prana shipped our boats to peru for us you know that's not a great return on their investment is it but um at the same time we're like well we're just here to have a a good time to do some exploring and you know, there's bound to be a consolation prize that we can go and enjoy. Um, strangely enough, pretty much the same thing, but in a very different format happened to me last year when I went to Nepal with my friends <laughs> in that we got to some... Uh, Nepal Gange is the um, armpit of Nepal, I think I'll refer to it as. So I won't use any stronger language, but it's not somewhere I'd recommend you add to your sightseeing places. So we travelled overland to Nepal Gange to save a few hundred bucks to then fly up to go and do a river it's called the Humla Canali that's really famous. And getting to Nepal Gange Airport where we've been assured several times that there was a card machine we could use to pay the $400 each for our excess boat baggage to fly up the valley. This card machine didn't exist and then it turned into, it had to be cash. Now trying to get US dollars in the armpit of Nepal is an impossible task it turns out. So once again, we're licking salt from our wounds <laughs> and retreating back to have a, uh, a try and come up with a again a second plan. But these are all parts of bit, undertaking a venture. You know, the, the outcome is uncertain, and and it might be that I've, the same thing could happen here if I drove up to Scotland for a weekend winter climbing and it was raining all weekend. I guess I got the luxury here of looking at a weather forecast before I leave. How much can we plan for trips and expeditions? You know, in 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 the run up to it, is it is there a danger that we 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 over plan for it, or is is getting the maximum amount of information exactly what we should be doing? I think it depends on uh, what the objective is of that trip. You know, again, if we go all the way back to the plan, it sounds like your friends come up with with this. This is our ideal, but then we've got these a couple of alternatives. If you go on a trip with those sort of things in your back pocket, then then you're kind of laughing when you get there and plan A doesn't work. You can just revert to plan B or plan C and everyone's kind of happy with that. And as an objective, as a shortcut, I mean, we, we managed to paddle the Tule Berry, which is the other classic river in that, on that side of the country. So it wasn't a really, it wasn't, it's not a bad consolation prize that um, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not exactly what we'd set out to do. So there was obviously a little bit of disappointment, but still, you know, we knew that the Tule Berry was over that side and if we had issues, we could go and do that instead. So that as a planning tool, is, I think, is really important for an expedition. I think the more of the things we can plan for expeditions is making sure our kit works. Like, you don't want to get there and then find out your stove's broken or something like that. They're the things that, you know, the detail is much more important than the big picture, I think, for a big trip like that, which sounds a little bit the wrong way around. But if you've taken away all those little things and you can just think about the big picture rather than trying to think about my stove doesn't work and I can't get on the river at the same time. Well, that strikes me as, as an example of um, elements that can lie within our complete control that we don't necessarily want to be giving processing power to in the moment. And to take the equipment example, 
if we've taken the time to ensure that the kit that we're using is absolutely reliable. And I'm, I'm reminding myself of hard-earned lessons in my ski touring experience when elements of my equipment um, became not only an issue for me in the day, but they drew my attention to the need to fix a problem with my binding that I probably could have dealt with before I left the valley. And in the moment, it felt like I was just compromising my safety because of an equipment concern, but actually I was compromising my safety in other ways by turning my attention away from environmental concerns and thinking about what was attached to my ski boot. And I can recall one or two occasions when I thought to myself afterwards that I'd really better make sure that I've completely mastered my equipment needs so that I can give all my attention to the really important stuff around me. Um, as a human being, I often have to learn these things through trial and error. And uh, I was thinking about your, your experience in, in Nepal there and how difficult it must have been to um, retreat from your objective when the circumstances had changed. And again, you know, like as humans, we're very, very driven to be consistent in our decision-making. And you'd already made a whole series of decisions to go to that part of the world, to commit to the journey, to get to the top of the watershed, and then to walk down to the point where, in theory, you're going to start the river trip. And it's that much harder to turn you back on your goal at that point because we've got all kinds of issues like sunk costs. You've put so much effort to get in there in the first place. Um, logic and... and uh, and a dispassionate approach to decision-making would very easily lead you to the conclusion that you'd better not continue. But it's hard in that moment, isn't it? Because of all of the, all of the uh, pressures that you feel as a result of the investment that you've made and the desire to commit to your self-identity as first descent type whitewater kayakers. Must have been a big deal to turn around and go back uphill. Yeah, I mean, it's given me a good story to tell in the pub, but not much else to show for it. So, um, and uh, yeah, as and it's still something that we wrestle with now. I still look back and think, oh, maybe we could have got away with it. But then I think again, I then reflect on those reflections and think getting away with it probably isn't the best attitude to have when it comes to risk. You know, we don't we don't engage in our activities to get away with things. We engage in our activities to control the risk and, and to engage with the environment that we go into in a respectful manner, not just thinking I can deal with anything it throws at me, you know, it's making the right choices. Um, but yeah, still a slight sour taste in my mouth and I wonder whether I need to go back to Peru. The kayaks are still over there somewhere. So final thing before we move on to some questions from our essential members, you, you mentioned about, um, you know, when, things got a bit tough and you had to make some choices and things were going a bit wrong, that it was good that, that you could rely on the people around you and the way that, you know, they would have some shared ideas and they would bring their experience to it. So, so how important are, are those kind of group dynamics when we're engaging in, 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 in expeditions and trips? To me, they're everything about the trip, you know, the, 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 the activity. And I think that definitely comes from my, my background as a participant before becoming a coach as well is the activity to me is secondary to the people that I go on these adventures with. I might have given you a different answer 10 years ago uh, for sure, but 
now I think about the shared times and like the people I was with on that trip, Pete Catcher and I, we had a fantastic time just taking the mick out of each other for three weeks and five days worth of kayaking in the pool or whatever it was we ended up managing, you know, and we still had a great time on that trip. I could imagine that if I was with some people that weren't as resilient or as much fun for me to be around, I'm not saying everyone has to get on with everyone, but you know, that weren't as much fun for me to be around, then I think that we would have had a, a, a very different trip. And that goes down to being on the water with these people as well, doesn't it? Or in the mountains, you know, we, we need to trust our friends that we're with, you know, that they're not only would have our backs, but they're also making the same decisions that we would make. And one of the big things I've shared, I've changed in my approach is I'm much more open about talking about the decisions that I think we need to make as a collective as we approach decision-making points. I'm minded of a time when we were over in the Lingen Alps and a friend of mine was really keen to ski this thing called the the godmother of all couloirs, which is a huge thousand meter long couloir that's about 40, 45 degrees the whole way. And uh, the first day we got there, it snowed about a foot. So obviously avalanche risk is quite high. We left it a couple of days for it to settle. We probably missed our opportunity in that day. And then the next day there was then wind blowing a load of snow into the top. And we're like, well, we've missed the opportunity to do that and we're all there kind of staring in at it going it'd probably be all right though wouldn't it you know and it probably would be all right but again we're all on the same page that it's about having a nice time and challenging ourselves in an appropriate manner rather than taking risks that we can't control but yeah it, it definitely comes back to those people and having those shared objectives and that's the same for me if i'm choosing to go away up to scotland for a weekend you know, or, or just to go out for a day trip out somewhere with people locally, you know, I've got to get on with those people as well. Otherwise, I don't feel like I've had a very nice day out at all. You know, it's all been a bit fraught and tense rather than just relaxing and enjoying ourselves, which again comes all the way back to my main purpose for going out now to do these things. It's to enjoy myself and to personally or to enjoy myself working. It's a question for both of you, Amy. You've done a lot of of trips where you've you know, called them working trips where you've been leading or guiding people. So are there any, any tips for dealing with um, situations where those kind of group dynamics start to, to break down? How do you, um, how do you look to, to try and improve those things? Or do you just say, well, this is part of the part of the process and, and let them get on. I think there's a couple of like classical things that we talk about in outdoor education, you know, where we think about the formation of a group involves some form of storming process where people start to fall out with each other before we then agree some values and things. Um, one of the things that I try to do now and I do do with some work that I do is set out just some, it's like, call it contract setting in the outdoors, but we just set out the sort of behaviours that we would expect from each other and, you know, and again, preload this decision-making process. So if it starts to get a little bit fraught, we've got something we can refer back to rather than just trying to deal with it there and then when emotions and tensions are running higher. And that's a really valuable tool, I think, as a, as a coach, as a leader in all these environments. It's like, I agree to do this if you agree to do that. And then we'll find a middle way together if these two things can't be met. Yeah, they're, they're quite, I know, in my... You know, my experience in the outdoors, working in outdoor centres, then setting out those, you, know, you use the word contract, which is what they get called, isn't it? But it's not that formal, I suppose, but um, you're just getting everyone on the same page, aren't you? So, you know, this this is the way it's going to be. And then if, if troubles come up, 
you're right. It's a it's a it's an anchor. It's a reference point to go back to, isn't it? Um, yeah. Sorry, Matthew. Um, I jumped in a bit quickly there. Um, there's an exercise I I do with my uh, my sea kayaking clients that might be related to this question. Um, we discuss the uh, we we. We discussed the, the, the challenges of, of being too wedded to a plan and to to have too little flexibility within our planning. Uh, and of course, there's, there's the, the issue of pride of ownership when we've put some effort in the previous evening to creating our expected conditions. We've got our weather forecast and our tidal picture. And by the time the next morning arrives, um, a, a certain degree of, of, of pride can develop as to the, uh, the quality of the plan. And uh, one game we sometimes play before departing is to literally put the plan on the table and whoever's been holding it at that point relinquishes ownership of it and says, okay, it's, it's no longer my plan, it's, it's our plan or it's nobody's plan. Let's take a look at it. And the question I ask of everybody is, well, let's imagine that we, we, we enact this plan flawlessly that, that we we do the things that, that this plan requires of us what could still nevertheless go wrong for us what problems could we nevertheless encounter and then it gets really interesting because people say well you know we might have a might have a problem with some equipment or somebody might fall in and we've got to go to that beach and fix it and time might pass and it might be that the tides are doing something different because we're later returning into the bay and so on. And it starts to focus people's minds on the uh, situations that might arise and might develop. Um, we also get to explore um, the, uh, the type of activities that people wish to engage in during the day. So if we're going to go around a headland, um, how long do we think we're going to spend there before we proceed or, or retreat from that point? And, and I think it links to something we've been talking about earlier where there are times when you you have opportunity to discuss and in the moment when there's time pressure in the outdoors and you're faced with a particular situation, that's often the hardest moment for us to engage in complex group dynamics where we're trying to make sure everyone has a voice and we figure out what people really want to do in that moment. So I try to front load it at the start of a day by way of exploration in terms of figuring out what might go wrong and then we have a discussion around that mm -hmm. so, so that, like you say there's a shared ownership of what's happening no one's pointing fingers going well you made this plan actually i'm i'm part of any problems that happen i'm part of it as well mm. what you've done there is describe situational awareness basically so um as the as the you're starting to get people to notice the things that might occur so they can start to understand those points on that journey and then predict what might occur so they can then plan for those predictions. Um, yeah. And then obviously the actual situational awareness occurs when we're in those environments. Um, but developing that in clients is something that's really important and it's very underlooked in adventure sports coaching. I often invite people to play particular roles in that discussion and I'll, I'll ask somebody to be the optimist and someone else to be the pessimist, another person to try to take an analytical approach to the available information and someone else to go on gut feeling. And then they can all tell us what they think they're going to experience as we go around the first major headland. 
we then share those ideas and collectively as a chair of the group we say right well what are we going to do we've had the optimism we've had the pessimism we've had the analysis and we've had the intuition what's our final decision going to be and it's often quite revealing because then we start to lean into our instinctive thought processes and how we prefer to process information whether we tend to see the the, the likely positive outcomes or whether we catastrophize a little bit um so i've, I've been getting quite a lot of use out of that particular game at the start of Sundays. Is it then is it then useful to to reference that when you when you reach that point in real life? So you reach that particular headland and then you can draw comparisons from you know sitting around a table to actually what what's gone on and then people can um kind of calibrate to the information. Yeah, 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 because we're generally discussing the the plan that we might at least partially follow during the day we might at least go to that launch point and see if it's worthwhile getting on the water there and you know we can inject a little bit of humor to the discussion as well as we arrive at our first major challenge we'll look around try and remember who the optimist in the group was funnily enough no one wants to take that role <laughs> and the question what could go wrong suddenly is very apparent for everybody um, I, I, I'm being slightly flippant in the moment here, but yeah, we do often take that exercise onto the water and we can play the game at the mouth of a bay or during lunch before we then continue our journey into the afternoon. Right. It comes back to that question before about whether we can um, help develop the people who we're working with, help develop their, their planning and their, their thinking about it. So I guess sitting around a table is great, but we need to be able to see what that looks like in real life too. Brilliant. Um, okay. Well, we've got some questions that have been sent in from our, um, from our essential members. So are you happy to have a bit of a, a quick fire round? There is one that's a little bit more um, um, interesting than the others, um, but we've got an easy one to start with and either one of you can, can kind of buzz in for this one. But um, Greg's asked a question. He says, what gear slash equipment do you usually carry for emergencies on, a, on expeditions? So for example, first aid kit contents and communication devices. Go on, Dan. Uh, like when we went to Nepal, we took uh, an inReach, which is a, a, a fantastic bit of satellite communication device that you can t send text messages through the satellite system so you're not reliant on mobile phone systems and stuff. So if you're somewhere remote, something like that that's also got a, a huge help me button on big red help me button that sends a message to all the grown-ups that will come and help you if you need it is absolutely essential for being in random places um, and then thinking to like it, it comes back to our idea of situational awareness and thinking beforehand what are the things that we might occur that might occur that we all need to deal with so when we went to Nepal we took a really big repair kit with us if I'm going whitewater kayaking in Scotland, my repair kit consists of a spare bung, and if anything else is broken, we're walking out because it's much easier to fix a boat long term back at base. You know, whereas in Nepal we had welding strips, loads of spare bolts and things. You know, black witch to fix neoprene rips and all sorts of stuff with us. Um, but I would say that the three things that I always carry with me, no matter where I'm going, would be a first aid kit of some description that's matched that activity and environment. So I don't always carry a giant first aid kit, but if I'm somewhere in the third world, I've got a lot more with me. Um, and a group shelter is so useful for using as a, a sail, but also for getting into when I'm home by lunch in the mountains, when the weather's a bit poor, 
And if something does go wrong, I've got something that will keep the environment off us while I start to deal with it and formulate a plan. Um, and then the third bit of key kit is a, a form of communication. So on the C, we've got VHF flares and probably our mobile phone as well. You know, in the hills now, we carry a, a mobile phone. And interestingly, in the Alps, if you're doing any work out there, the guides associations also you have to carry two forms of communication device with you. So a mobile phone and another one. So in the Chamonix Valley, they all carry radios, um, like they do in the Northern Corries, actually, in Glenmore Lodge staff, um, or elsewhere, people are using those spot satellite messengers. So first aid kit, group shelter, and then something to get help to, to you with. And obviously the means to tell people where you are. Yeah. And I guess some of that, um, one of those kind of preparations for emergencies is falls into that planning stage of letting people know where you're going and what you're getting up to so that you know, they, you've got a sure contact or a home base that, that is aware of what should be going on. Um, and as a result, if, if things do, do get delayed, there's a set of protocols that they can, they can follow yeah. just in case. Okay. Brilliant. All right. Um, anything from you, Nick? Yeah. It's probably the same, isn't it? I think Dan's probably covered it. Uh, the question was it Greg's question. It was Greg's question. It said, what kit do you carry for an emergency? Well, I, I found on overnight trips that if I, carry enough alcohol i'm more or less guaranteed an emergency <laughs> um in my in my in my sea kayak working life uh on anglesey at least yeah to reinforce what dan said i carry comms i carry a vhf radio because it's it's very very useful in these waters i carry a tow line so i can move a person or people to a better place and i carry equipment in my boat that enables me to look after people who would otherwise get cold. If I can keep people warm and I can move them to a better place and I can communicate, then in my Anglesey sea kayaking work, I'm a long way to having fixed the problem. Brilliant. Um, great. I hope that answers your question, Greg. Um, we've had a question from, from Rob, and um, Rob's keen to hear about any visualization or mental training preparation that can be done prior to trips or, or, or expeditions? Go on, Dan, how about you have a go at this one? So I think there's two things here. What Nick spoke about eloquently before with looking at the route and foreseeing different things that you can do is a really valuable form of uh, mental preparation, I guess, for any sort of trip and in environment. And then... The other the other pit of me that leaps out from that from a coaching perspective is um, perhaps a, a, a segue away from this, but um, mental practice is normally looked at as the rehearsal of a skill or, or something. So um, the, it is a bit different from planning your next actions, but it's practicing the next actions in our own heads, in our own minds. Um, People do this one of two ways. You know, they either pitch themselves as if they were looking for an Oculus Rift, one of those VR lenses, so you can see yourself as if you're taking part in the activity. I'm actually putting my hands around my glasses as if I'm wearing a VR headset there. Um, or you could be looking at yourself as if you're watching it on TV from a third-person point of view. Um, they're, now, they're really good approaches uh, in aiding skill acquisition because they help us support storage and retrieve of information. Um, so... Uh, it, but they are linked to our imagery ability. So you, 
the first point of call is to think about developing imagery ability in order to effectively use mental practice. And you can develop your imagery ability by thinking, by layering on information. So just start off with simple descriptions of the environment and then add to that by thinking about what it might feel like on your paddle blade in that environment or what the feel might be like underneath your bum when you've got the waves passing underneath you at sea or any of those things. And then think about the pressure you'll be feeling on different parts of the boat. And you can keep layering these till you've got a really complex picture in your head of different things. So hopefully we've either answered your question by listening to what Nick said a few minutes ago or thinking a little bit more about specific mental practice for skill development. Yeah, and I suppose some of those things are transferable to to just thinking about how you're going to go through those processes in preparation for you know a, a day trip or a you know a play spot or a, a multi-day expedition as well so great and um final question is from james so stand by for this one sorry if you're eating but um james says i do have a question around what we do with human waste um, I've heard conflicting arguments about it being okay to poo below the tide line and let the sea take it, or whether we should bury it or carry it out. Um, he puts, I bet it. I guess it depends on the ecology of the area and other factors. Likewise with toilet paper. So there you go. But make what you want from that question. But I think he's saying, how does he best go to toilet when he's on expeditions? James, thanks for the question. Uh, the, there, there is quite a lot of information available out there via the No Trace website, for example, and um, as sea kayakers, you can also go to if you have in Scotland, the Scot Scottish Canoe Association has got some really good PDF resources that that um, that summarise the approach we could take. Um, a couple of pieces of advice I'd give you. Um, and I've been, uh, I've, I've had to confront this in, in my in my recreational and working life. Uh, the number of people we go off and have adventures with can can make this uh, a, a simple issue to resolve or a very complicated one. And I think that if you go off on your trips with large numbers of people, then the question of dealing with human waste is a, is a huge one. Um, if there are two or three of you, then some of the some of the received advice about about going to the tide line towards low tide, uh, burning your 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 toilet paper afterwards. So it's, it's all very reasonable advice that, that individuals and parties of two or three people can follow. It's much more challenging to take that approach if you find yourself part of a group of eight, ten, twelve people. So Sounds like we're going to have to discuss that as well. Um, Dan, are you uh, are you able to uh, get me off the hook here with some information? I'll, I'll hook you up here. So um, I, I think that's I think the the biggest thing to, for us to consider here is the impact we're having on the environment. So if only two or three of us are going to a place and it's a really remote place on the west coast of Scotland, probably following the leave no trace advice of dig a shallow hole six inches deep or so cutting the turf out properly, dig a shallow hole, go in that hole, but pack your toilet paper out with you and then replace the turf is the best advice that we can follow. If it is a more busy area and the Cairngorm have got a thing called the Snow White Project that's worth looking up, James, specifically, for big groups, but it's for everyone. So uh, there's a lot of snow holding goes on in the Cairngorms through the winter months. And then as the snow holes retreat, it tra transpires that 
the little treats that are left behind in the snow holes slowly come to the surface and then pollute the watercourse and things. So they actually provide what they call poo, poo tubes. So you do a little poo in a bag or you poo and then get it into your little bag, screw the canister onto the top of this airtight container and pack that out with you. And I, I personally would be... I have done that on several trips now. I think that the impact that we have on the environments we're going into is increasing. We've seen all the pictures that have come out as we've been released from lockdown in the UK of people affecting the environment. And I think that our role as ambassadors for the environment we go into is to try and do everything we can to protect it. I think, yeah, depending on where you go in the world, some of these decisions are taken away from you. Um, I'm sure you've been on one or two river trips down where the required system is to is to pack it out, to pack everything out, your human waste, as well as the paper. Um, and I guess when we're away from that kind of structure and it falls to us to set our own standards, that's where increasingly we're going to have to consider that our legacy, if I could put it that way. Um, while the West Coast of Scotland can seem quite a wild place, Quite a number of venues are extremely popular through the summer with sea kayaking groups. And um, I'm sure, just like myself, you've, you've occasionally encountered a less than desirable welcome when you've arrived at what would appear to be a fairly remote beach. I'm really mindful of that when I'm out there and I try to, um, try to reduce and possibly remove any evidence that I've, that I've been there. Mm. Yeah, it's a tough one. Things are going to get to be a bigger subject as more and more of us turn to these adventure sports. We've done work trips together, and I know you're very um, you're very keen on if we if we visit an island, then also not not contributing to the um, kind of waste disposal as well. So outside of the subject of human waste, but you know litter and all those things just turn up at a, a really small. Um, village and, and then just us dumping all our rubbish into their bins it, it's a big job for them to then get it back off the island so um keeping hold of all that and retaining that as well is is just as important i think mm-hmm. um, and, and also james thinking about location of where you do these things as well in relation to um you know water sources and campgrounds and maybe you might go to some venues where multiple groups turn up and you might have decided on a toilet area that's really good for you um, and then uh, another group arrives and then all of a sudden they're camping on, on your toilet area. So if, if other groups turn up, communicating with those about designated areas that, that you've chosen to use. Um, so it's a, good, it's a good question. And I think that, like Nick said, there's a lot of information out there, um, whether it's for being up in the mountains, whether it's for being um, lowland areas or whether it's for being out near the coast. So um, hopefully we've given you enough there, but there's also lots, lots to get your teeth into. That's oh, not a very good phrase, getting your teeth into that. To, um, to, to link this neatly to uh, the overall theme of, of, uh, of the discussion in this podcast, I think that um, this is an area, uh, an area that could very usefully be discussed by a group before they embark on a trip. Uh, I've, I've been involved with a number of commercial trips in North America, in British Columbia, and Alaska. And prior to embarking on a multi-day sea kayak trip, a substantial amount of time has been spent with group members 
discussing the protocols of minimizing our impact on the environment and the subject of waste disposal is addressed overtly together. Uh, agreed methods of practice are, are uh, decided by the group and people follow, people follow the, the principles and the rules that are established before they arrive at the first night's camp. There you go. That's a great way to finish it off. Um, I hope that, that gives you enough information there, James. Um, so that's, that's it then, folks. Um, I want to thank Dan for taking the time today to, to chat through us, and it's been really interesting to hear those um, experiences that you've had, especially um, to share the experiences where things haven't gone to plan. Um, because I guess we all we all have those moments where those things happen, um, and the great learning opportunities, like you say, and it's all part of the adventure. That sometimes we don't always know everything. It'd be boring if if we planned it and it went perfectly to you know perfectly to plan and nothing was was challenging us. Um, so uh, yeah, but I want to thank you very much, Dan, for taking the time to um, spend with us today, and um, maybe come back and speak to us about another subject soon if you like. Thanks for having me on, guys. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I think it's a great uh, thing we're trying to do here with this podcast. It's a really nice medium for getting information into people's minds as we're thinking about our journeys or driving around the country, which we do so much. So, yeah, well done for getting off the ground and going. Thanks a lot for that. Um, Nick, as always, thanks for your contributions. Really good to, to hear your perspective on stuff as well. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be involved. And it's uh, it's really good to chat with you, Dan, about these subjects. So. Let's do it again sometime. If you've enjoyed the show, why not take a look at our Essential Members program? For only £3.60 a month, you get exclusive access to a huge range of videos, articles and webinars covering technical skills, leadership principles and coaching issues from the world of paddle sports, with many topics easily transferred to other adventure sports. We think it's amazing value, so come and check it out. Remember, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, have fun and stay safe.